And so I have a fairly direct job today. You know that I've been going through the book of Nehemiah. One of the things though that I've been trying to point out is that because the book is actually much longer than the period of building the wall, we know that it's not just about the wall. It's not about the wall. I mean, it's very similar to a lot of things that you'll see in scripture. It's, there's a lot of things that we can read from scripture about specific individual events. And the specific individual events are important in themselves. But the important part that I want to be able to bring out today is that it's actually part of a much larger story. And that you're not going to understand the, the actions of these people, the things that God does through these people, unless we understand that God is doing amazing things through this. Uh, many of you will know that I waste my time studying far more than I need to. So uh, I actually am in, a, I'm in, I'm, I'm in another uh, school program at Memorial. Great school, great people to work with. And I've been reading a book by a guy named Charles Taylor. Uh, he's been talking about, some, and in one of the chapters, he talks about what's called a social imaginary. And he says that today, we in the West live in a more modernistic social imaginary as opposed to people in the past. We have a different framework through which we see things. It's not that we have thought this through. It's not that we, have, that we can tell you about what exactly it is that we're thinking these things through. It's the natural assumptions we have when we look at things. And I think he has, he has a good point because I think that there's a, a way in which we can read the Bible and in fact read our own lives that is more shaped by the way the culture tells us we should see things than the way the Bible seems to actually assume the world works. And so one framework is kind of a framework of personal fulfillment. You've heard this before. If you've seen any Disney movie, you know this one. Actually, any movie at all, pretty much nowadays. It's about how, you know, life is about actualizing yourself. Be who you need to be. March to your own drummer. Actualize your own understanding of the world and the universe. Uh, it, it goes into Supreme Court decisions nowadays. Uh, if you read the Obergefell decision in the US, it actually says that one of the basic rights of humanity is to be able to define your own identity. We, we now believe that we have the right, the ability to define who we are at the central core tenet. It's not something that we were born with. It's not something that God created. It's something that we actualize ourselves. What's the number one moral maxim of our society? I have the right to do whatever I want as long as I don't hurt anybody else. And that hurt is defined as not allowing them to do anything they want to actualize themselves. Every one of us is an individual. We have a cluster of rights ourselves. That's the framework we live in. And we apply this to stories. We apply this to books. We apply this to other people's lives. We're all insular. I mean, when we read our Bibles, 
you, I, I, if you're like me, you do this, if you, if you don't, if you don't they stop and think about it, you read the Bible sometimes as a string of pearls where there's, you know, they're all pretty, they're all very good stories, very useful stories, very useful events, but they don't necessarily match with each other or mesh too well, save that they're on the same string, they're all in my Bible. And yet, that isn't the only way to see the world. I'd actually say that's probably not the biblical way to see the world. I do believe that everybody has rights, no question about that. I do believe that we have to make our own decisions and we're responsible ourselves before God. But we are not merely individuals. We are individuals, but we are not merely individuals. We stand as a people. This is the second frame. And I think this is the framework you'll see working through scripture. It's the framework that I think we need to work hard to make sure seeps down into the depths of our souls. And it's going to be hard because the society doesn't work this way. We live as believers ultimately for the glory of God. For the, we live in thanks of the past glory of God. We live today in the glory that God has worked in us today and we work in hope of the glory that God has promised for the future. We see this in Nehemiah. I th think we see this actually in every book in the Bible. And we see it in our own lives. And so I'm going to argue this morning that when we look at Nehemiah, we see a people, the people of Israel. And because the people of the Israel saw themselves through God's glory, they prepared themselves to be part of God's glorifying himself for, through them for generations to come. Because they understood that they were not just themselves, that they stood in a line where God was working through them in the past, in the present, for a future that's set by God, that they prepared themselves to be part of that glory. And we should be like that. That's my argument for this morning. Now, the reason for this is pretty simple. I think a lot of times when we as a, as a society focused too much on our individualism, we focus too much on who we are as individual people, it's great for a little while. It's great to be able to you know, feel that you're God of your own little world. But after a while, you begin to recognize that I make a pretty bad God. I don't know if you guys have reached that point yet. I, if you are really believing that you are God of your own universe right now, if you're not there yet, just wait a little while, you'll get there. <laughs> I'm a terrible God. And worse, I can't create meaning. I mean, the world, uh, postmodern the philosophy and theology will tell you that you create your own meanings. But as you can see in most of the culture, I mean, we have some of the highest depression rates ever. Even as we, have, we are the most insanely wealthy people that have ever walked the earth. And yet we have huge depression rates. Why is that? 
because we imagine that our meaning is something that's simply bound up in ourselves. And worse, we, as people here in the church, know that there is a God. We know that Christ loves us, that he loved us while we were yet sinners and saved us. They don't know that. We live in a world where most people live in the darkness of actually thinking that meaning is just in themselves, that there is no greater meaning for their lives, that, that, that if they die tomorrow, the only meaning that they could have is if somebody else misses them. Where the Bible tells us that God has created us for a purpose and that we are being part of that story throughout all history. You have a value and it's just the way things are. And yet most don't know that. That's tragic. So I'm going to look at Nehemiah. I'm going to look at a few basic points about Nehemiah and I'm going to talk about where Nehemiah is. But first I need to set some context here. Again, this is something you probably would know if you've read your Bible cover to cover, but I just want to uh, accent it a little bit. You see, Nehemiah, the people of, of Nehemiah's time are existing at a point in history. They are in a part of the story. They are not the beginning of the story. They are not the end of the story. They're in the middle of the story. And their, their story is still about the glory of God, as we know, revealed in Christ. You see, the promise of God was given before the time of Nehemiah, well before the time of Nehemiah. I'll give you the, an example. Genesis chapter 26, verse 4. This is God speaking to Isaac at this point, reaffirming the promise he had given to Abraham, Isaac's father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and I will give to your offspring all these lands, referring to the lands, by the way, that Nehemiah is building, a, building walls around to protect. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. The mission of the people of Israel is to be a blessing to the world. And the people of Nehemiah, I mean, his pious him, know that this is the promise. They haven't seen the promise fulfilled yet, but they, they know and they believe it will be. In fact, we know it has been. It was fulfilled after Nehemiah. Look at John chapter one, verses 10 to 14. This is something Pastor Steve actually preached through. He, referring to Jesus Christ, was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, the people of Nehemiah's time were preparing a place for the God of the universe to come. He, they were preparing the land. They were preparing the context 
for Jesus Christ to be part of the world and in Jesus Christ for all of the nations of the world to be blessed through him. A blessing that's available to everyone who will simply believe. So that everyone can join this story in a positive sense. We don't need to be victims of our isolation or victims of God's wrath. We can join the kingdom of God through Christ. And the people of Nehemiah's time knew that this, was, this promise was coming. We now know that it came. But the people of Nehemiah are living in the middle. And that's where you have to understand they are when we look at this text in Nehemiah chapter 7. You should probably open your Bible to Nehemiah chapter 7 if you haven't already. Uh, I actually mean that this time because Nehemiah chapter 7 has 73 verses. I don't want to read them all to you. There's a lot of really, really difficult names in there and I'll stumble over all of them. So I'm just going to be pointing to parts of it. But again, as uh, many of the elders have said when they stand up here, <laughs> I want you to open your Bibles and look there because I don't want you to trust me. I want you to trust God and his word as it tells you what I'm going to say. Because this is beautiful. So in Nehemiah chapter 7, again, as I've said, we saw that the walls have already been built. In Nehemiah 7, 1 starts, now when the wall had been built. I want to stop there for a second to recognize, as I've said, this means the wall isn't the point. The wall is a part of the point. It is something that participates in the point, but it isn't the point of the book of Nehemiah. It says in the first four verses here, that when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors, the gatekeepers, the singers, the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani, that's if you remember from chapter one, verse one, Hanani, his brother, was the guy who told Nehemiah about what was happening in Jerusalem and why they needed a wall. So I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. Notice that, the, that Nehemiah is setting things up in a good way for the people of Israel to work, for, the, for Jerusalem to be set up well as a city. But the way that he chooses the people to fulfill the roles is kind of odd from our modern perspective. You know, I don't really care what your private beliefs are as long as you do the right things. Well, Nehemiah says, no, actually, we're going to put somebody in, in charge because he's godly. There's a sense in which godliness is important here. And, and, and more than that, he said, and Nehemiah says to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from amongst the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their own guard posts and some in front of their own homes. Remember what a wall meant for the ancient peoples. It's kind of the same as us having a police force now. If there are no walls around your city, bandits and other bad people come and take your stuff, including things like your life and your wives and your children and everything about you. You are not safe if there are no walls, especially around a city. You know, a big city has lots of wealth. That's what cities are. They're aggregations of wealth. And then with no walls, there's no protection. So people wouldn't be safe to be there. 
And so what Nehemiah is doing here is setting up a context in which the people of Israel can flourish. Not that they're there now, but so that they can flourish in the future. He is making it safe. His rule there to make sure that, there are guard, that they don't open the doors until the sun is high and that they have guards the whole time means that the people are going to be protected. They're going to be solidly protected for an entire period of time so that if you come into the city and if you set up your home and if you become part of the people of Israel, you will be safe. Not that there are people here. Look at this in verse four. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few and no houses had been rebuilt. You see, Nehemiah and the people of Israel at this time are setting up a context for the people of Israel to flourish. This is part of the process. People can't become part of a people unless they're safe to. I, I, I think this is important for us to remember as a church, just as an aside here. Um, we live in a fairly highly secularized culture here in Newfoundland. Uh, about three, four percent of the population, well actually probably two and a half percent of the population of St. John's and area will probably hear a gospel message today. And not, that's me estimating fairly high. Lots of people in the pew, in the city out there have been to church. They've been part of churches. They've been part of the body of believers at some point or other. And a lot of them have been burned <laughs> rather badly. In fact, uh, if you guys are going to be honest, I'm pretty sure most of you have been burned <laughs> by the church at one point or another if you've been part of the church for any length of time whatsoever. The church is made up of people. People are sinners. They burn each other. It's just the way things go. But a church needs to be set up to be safe for people to join. And I don't mean safe in the sense of, you know, we, we affirm everything and accept everything. I mean safe in the sense that each and every one of us who are believers are prepared to be on guard against not other people's sin so that we can burn them, but against our own sin. So that when they come to us and when we recognize that the person who comes in here is really jacked up, like seriously messed up, I know, and everybody here knows, I'm pretty messed up too. And so I don't need to be judgmental and hateful of them. I can just help them know God more and come to saving faith in him and to repent and confess sins. So there's a sense in which you need to prepare safety so that people can join. People can become part of you as a people group. And the people of and Nehemiah's time recognized that in a more physical way because they needed a city, they needed a wall, they needed an area that would be safe for people to join. And so they prepared it before anybody had come. That's important. Before anybody had come. They didn't think about the serving just the people who were part of them, the people who were already here. They were getting ready to serve the people who God had prepared to graft into them, to be part of their people. So, I mean, you can imagine how it feels for these guys who are, you know, being set up as guards on the wall. You know, you, you look out over the, over the plains outside the wall and it's empty and there's nobody there. And then you look behind you and you realize you're, you're guarding nothing. 
which is more, I have more stuff behind me than they did. You look behind you and there's nothing behind you. It feels weird because you're guarding, well, nothing. <laughs> but you do it in trust that God is doing something, that you are part of us, that you're part of a story where God is going to be ready to use you to glorify himself by building a nation behind you being ready to guard in that position. They are preparing for a future. They take the present seriously too. Notice they don't grumble about this. They don't say, well, you know, we don't really need to guard this stuff. We don't need to be serious about closing the gates at the right time. They actually do this stuff. And they prepare it as if they were guarding something more than just, well, empty space behind them. They were getting ready to take it seriously now so that it could be taken seriously in the future. Just as we are called to take our own walk in Christ seriously now, as God will use us for the future. They were preparing to be used of God. So that's the first point. They prepare. They are preparing and guarding to be ready for the future. Second point, this is from verses 5 to 65, which I will spare you by not trying to read the whole thing. We already dealt with, by the way, most of this in uh, chapter three when I preached through that about that. There's a few points that I need you to remember about what it means when you see long lists of people not numbered in the Bible, especially here in Nehemiah. Again, we come from a very individualistic people. A lot of us are going to talk about faith in Jesus as if, you know, you guys just need to pray a prayer and have, it'll be just between you and Jesus and it'll, that's all you need to have. It's one of the reasons that most of us have trouble actually, you know, joining a church. And I don't care how you mean join a church. I don't mean I don't mean you have to sign documents or anything like that. I mean there's lots of people who just think, you know, it's okay if I, you know, it's just me and Jesus. I don't need to be part of a people of God. I don't need to be meeting with other believers all the time, you know. I I've got a good a good thing with God. But if you look at the Bible, the Bible doesn't even understand that. We are called as a people. And you look here in Nehemiah 7, and again, look at this. We're two and a half millennia removed from this. And now we can read about the people that God called two and a half millennia ago to prepare a place for his glory. It's about people, not just me and Jesus. It's us and Jesus. In a real sense, if you are believers today, and since I am a believer today, what I prayed about the church around the world is true. We are parts one of another. It's not an analogy or an allegory or some kind of, it's literal when the Bible says we are brothers and sisters. It means it. Uh, I have two brothers and a sister. We don't get along all the time because we're normal humans. We don't get along all the time, but I'm always there for them and they are always there for me. And that's what we are called to be as a people. It's not just for me and Jesus. I don't know. I am going to fail you all at some point. I really am. I'm, I'm not a very good person. I wish I was better. But I'll tell you this, by God's grace, 
I, I will fight to be there for you. And if by God's grace, God's spirit moves in you to say the same, I hope you're there for me. Because I'm gonna, make, I'm gonna sin, I'm gonna make mistakes, I'm gonna need you to be ready to hug me, even though I hate hugs. <laughs> I really do. English, English stock, we don't, we stiff upper lip and all that stuff. I'm gonna need you to be there to be comforting to me. I'm gonna need you to be there to kick me in the butt when I do something idiotic and think that I'm the greatest thing since sliced bread. I'm going to need a people around me and I'm gonna, I'm gonna go out on a limb and say, you all need a people around you too. Some of them will be more close than others, but every one of us as believers needs a posse. And that's why we see God saving not just individuals, but peoples. He calls peoples out. We are not meant to be alone. And we can see that through all of the passages. There are massive amounts of these long passages throughout scripture where, Jesus, where God just lists in his word people that you're supposed to be part of. You see, this is about a nation. This isn't just about me and Jesus. God's glory is, it will be written through my life by God's grace through his Holy Spirit. But God's glory is far bigger than me. If God's glory is gonna be revealed to the world, he's gonna need more than just me to do it because his glory is overwhelming. Now, I don't mean that he needs us in the sense that, you know, he isn't glorious without us, but if he's going to show his full glory through humans, he's going to need more than one human. The exception of Jesus, who was God. But it's about more than just me. And we all fill different roles. I can't play a musical instrument to save my life. But there are people who are called to lead us in praise and worship of our king because they can play a musical instrument. Some people do not have the patience to sit down and read philosophy, but we have people here who can sit down and read philosophy and talk to you about what it says and show you how God expresses himself through that. I'm, I'm never ever going to be able to cook anything good. I mean, microwaves are a great invention for me, but there are people who will be able to feed all of us together differently. We work together, there are different roles. There are roles of people who are going to be elders and deacons, there are people who are going to be uh, leading Bible studies, there are people who are gonna be just really good friends and listeners. I'm actually relatively sure there are people who are actually specifically designed just to be the most comforting people in the universe. We actually see examples of that in scripture, but it's about more than just me. So first of all, they prepare and they guard. They do this, whether or not it needs to be done right now in the sense of they don't see the need now, but they prepare for the future need, recognizing that God has promised something. They do it not just by themselves. They do this as a nation and they support the work however they can. Look down at verse 66. Now the whole assembly together was 42,360 people. 
besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337. They had 245 singers, male and female. Their horses were 736, their mules 245, their camels 435, and their donkeys 6,720. So they, they have some stuff. Now, some of the heads of their father's houses gave to the work. The governor gave to the treasury a thousand derricks of gold, 50 basins, 30 priests' garments, and 500 minas of silver. By the way, there were accountants in the early, in the early people of Israel. They accounted all of this. So yes, accountants actually are called of God. Just saying. And some of the heads of fathers, sorry, and what the rest of the people gave was 20,000 derricks of gold, 2,000 miners of silver, and 67 priests' garments. What you can see is that people are giving to the work of God. They're not just simply saying, well, you go, Nehemiah, build that wall. I'll be sitting over here. They're not like that. In fact, we recognize back in chapter three, lots of these guys actually worked on the wall. But a lot of other people who recognize the need that there's, you're going to need money to build a wall. You're going to have to buy those stones and those woods and all that kind of stuff. Recognize that money needs to be given. And notice in the text, it doesn't say they all gave and they gave a specific amount or a percentage. It says they all or some gave. That means they're choosing to give. You know what I think is happening? They're seeing the glory of God. They're seeing the promises of God. They're seeing what God is doing through Nehemiah and working in the people around them. And they see the need and so they give because they want to be part of God's glory. They want to be showing God's glory. They want to be prepared to be a people for God's glory. They're ready to prepare and prepared to give whatever needs to be given. Some, that means that they work hard. Some, that means they give money. For a lot of them, it means both. But they're prepared to give. They're prepared to support the work however it needs to be done. See, in the middle of the story, recognizing the promises of God that, have co that are coming, that haven't come yet, they recognize that they need to be part of the story. They weren't just called to sit around and be the people of God and, you know, I'm the people of God, but to actually work as the people of God, to fulfill the role as the people of God, where God has given them gifts to use those gifts to further the kingdom of God. Not because there's a rule set up. Notice it doesn't say I, I, I set a taxation over the people and they had to give a specific percentage of their income to make sure that we could build the wall. These people give because they desire to. They see the need and they choose to give. And so that's what I mean when I said at the beginning, the people of Israel saw themselves through God's glory. They prepared themselves to be part of God's glorifying himself through them for generations to come. That's what we see in Nehemiah chapter seven. Now the remainder of the sermon is about my second point. We should be like that. You see, we're not at the end of the story ourselves. We aren't. We are promised great things in Jesus Christ. I'll give you an example. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. 
Nobody's excited yet. I'll say it again. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. (laughs) Thank you. You're getting it. Amen. Do you realize what that means? Do you know those sins that are still clinging on to you? Those things that in the middle of the night you go, I really wish I didn't do that. Your sin will die. You will be a holy, perfected person. You will be part of a holy, perfected people. Because he who began a good work in you will carry it through to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. And that's not me saying it. That's the Bible. You can bank on this. That's not it. That's not all. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting to read at verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? By what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel perhaps of wheat or of some other grain, but God gives it a body as he has chosen and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. I don't know why the fish was mentioned there, but anyway, there are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is another kind. And there is one glory of the sun and another the moon and another the stars for star differs from star and glory. And so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown perishable is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. I have to say glory like that because you know, kind of weak, weak to say glory, glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There's a natural body. There's also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so are also those of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so are all those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Death is an enemy. I'm I'm watching, you know, family members die. I watch terrible things happen. We saw terrible things happen around the world. This will pass. There will be a day when death is no more. There will come a day when we will be raised incorruptible to be with Christ. Christ. We will be a kingdom together. So not only will we not be sinners, we won't even be of the broken things we are now. The effect, not just the 
reality of sin in our lives will be gone, so too will the effect of sin in our lives. He will redeem everything. And I love the word redeem because it doesn't mean he just simply pretends it didn't happen. He takes the terrible things that have happened and turns them to his glory. And that's his promise. We live with that promise. I don't know about you, you haven't seen this happen yet. I'm, I'm not in that position. I am not wholly sanctified. I am not a fully sinless person yet, but it will happen. I am not, I, I presently am not a complete example of all things it should be to be masculine. That's why I don't have very many dates. But there will come a day when I will be the human that God designed me to be in totality. We live with that promise. Each and every one of us who places their faith in Jesus Christ today has that promise. Regardless of where you are now, regardless of what you deal with now, he loves you that much and it is a solid promise and it will be fulfilled. Revelation chapter 21, starting at verse nine. Then came one of the seven angels who had of the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, by the way, the imagery in Revelations does kind of freak me out a little, but bear with me for a moment. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. Remember, the church is called the bride of Christ. This holy city, Jerusalem, is the bride of Christ prepared. This is the church in our final glory. And I'm, I'm just gonna skip down a bit because I'm running out of time. And the city has no need of sun or moon, this is verse 23, of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the lamb. By its light will the nations walk. By its light the nation will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. There will come a time when we don't have to worry about whether or not Donald Trump or Kim Jong-un are going to nuke the world because they won't matter. It'll be about God and about him. They will be, the people who are redeemed, the leaders who are redeemed will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. Can you imagine it's an entire city without what we think are politicians? There will be a day when all of our leaders will be good, noble, holy people because they will be in Christ. And our ultimate leader will be Christ. We will have no need of light because we have God as our light, both physically and metaphysically. All truth will be available to us. But, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. There will be a time when there will be a nation completely... And so, friends, 
with this promise as sure as it is, with these promises clear as they are, knowing that there will come a day when this will be fulfilled in its totality, we are in the same position as the people at the time of Nehemiah. We need to prepare ourselves for the kingdom of God. We need to have the long view that the people of Nehemiah did. They built the, people, the, temp, the walls of Jerusalem and the city of Jerusalem. It would be hundreds of years before Jesus would come there. Generations upon generations upon generations. But they were ready. So, what are our applications for this morning? First of all, we as a people need to hope in the promises of God. Now, I'm assuming that we know the promises of God. You find those by looking in here. Not necessarily this one. You, you probably should have your own copy. But look in, the, in your Bibles. Read about the promises of God and trust in them. This will give you a longer-term view of the world. One of the problems that you know people, uh, politicians will tell you about political parties and you know administrations of governments—they have a very short time scale. You know, the next election. We should not be people who care about short-term goals. We're in it for the long game, the ultimate glory of God, for eternity. So what happens in the next 5, 10, 15, 20, my lifetime, my children's lifetime, my grandchildren's lifetime, if God tarries that long, aren't as important as the long-term glory of God. You know, Jonathan Edwards, the famous uh, American preacher, prayed for the next seven generations of his family. That's a long-term view. We need to be like that. Not just prepared to reach St. John's in, in the next five years. We should be working to reach St. John's. But you know what? We should be thinking about that in the terms of centuries. I want my great, 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 great grandkids, metaphysically speaking, to be knowing Christ, to be part of a kingdom of God, to know this, and so that when the Lord returns, he finds the people around uh, that are from here faithful. We need a long term. We need to hope in God's promises and for the long term. We need to obey God's call. We need to do what God tells us to do. Most especially to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But there are other callings we have. Has God given you a job? He has called you to be good at that job. We can see that in the word. We are supposed to do that as if to the Lord. There's a reason for that. We have a long-term view. We have the view of God's glory as ultimate. You don't need to be lost in thinking that your job is meaningless. Even the most menial of jobs in this room, and I know because I worked at a call center, one of the most menial jobs possible, is designed to be glorifying to God in some way. God will use it for his glory, and you only need to be prepared to let him use it for his glory. So you need to do it in him. So obey God's call. Obey God's call to care about people around you. Do, the, do people tell you that you should hate that guy? Disobey them, obey God, love your enemies. 
and pray for those who persecute you? Does the world tell you to fear people from that country? Disobey that. Obey God who tells you to love people of every tribe, tongue, and nation. Does the, does the world tell you that you should not trust people around you? Disobey that, obey God. And trust not necessarily in people, but in Jesus Christ. Finally, give your all. That means everything. As God calls you to prepare for God's glory to be fulfilled in us. What we spend on the many silly things we spend things on is not going to last, but whatever we spend for Christ lasts for all eternity. Love your neighbors in your stuff, not just your words. Open your homes. Be known as hospitable people. That's what God calls us to. Give our all prepared for God's glory to be fulfilled in us. And take the long view, like I said. This is not about just our lives. This is not just about the next few days or the next few years or even the next century. This is about the eternity God has prepared. So take the long view.